Hi, and welcome to another episode of Magical Match, a place to hear about real people with real stories around the important topic of stem cell donation and transplants. In each episode, I'll be chatting with donors, recipients, those in supportive roles, and people who have been affected by either a personal experience or through another's inspirational story. It is my hope that by opening the conversation around stem cell donation, we can inspire more people to sign up to the stem cell register, offering more hope to those in need. In this episode, I spoke with Mike Niles, the author who has written the most incredible book called Hard Graft. This book tells of the history and the science around stem cell donation, and at the heart of it, an incredible mother, an incredible family, with an incredible story. Welcome to Michael Niles. Thank you very much for joining me today on Magical Match. I want to, first of all, congratulate you on the publishing of your book, Hard Graft. It's an astonishingly brilliant and informative read, having just read it, literally. First of all, why did you want to start writing this sort of book? What first drew you to the whole situation of stem cell donation? Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. And that, those lovely words, it's so nice to hear. Um, yeah, it was, it was kind of a weird intro. I, I signed up to the Anthony Nolan Register, uh, like many people do. And I'm, I'm actually a, a journalist by trade. So I just got really interested and started going down a bit of a black hole of research as like, where did this come from? Like a bit of a Wikipedia <laughs> wormhole or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I just found it fascinating. I, I, th- I thought some of the stories and some of the people involved were like really interesting and I'm not a sciencey person. That probably comes across in the book. But I really found it fascinating as just a lay person. Just to, yeah. So started doing a bit more research and I actually then contacted some of the people involved yeah. in the research. And the more I spoke to them, the more I realised this is incredible, like an incredible moment in history or in, in sort of like science, really, that's within our lifetimes. So yeah. it's recent, like all the things you hear of in the past that were like, this was the groundbreaking moment of change in this area of science or medicine yeah they're like centuries ago yeah so yeah so so contacted some of the key people I won't give away any spoilers until we talk about it but then um (laughs) and they were just sort of saying this has never been written before this has never been done it's we find it fascinating but obviously we're in it yeah and that sort of gave me the spur and the the kick really to just be like well if no one else is doing it then I may as well give it a go why not (laughs) yeah yeah exactly so when did you first start writing the book because it must have taken a while given the information (laughs) in it (laughs) yeah it has probably first started in 2016 um speaking to the first few people doing my research and almost sort of getting an idea of what a story might look like like this is a fully non-fiction like every person in it is real all the stories are based on as you said like quite a lot of painstaking research um to get to the point of it's not just sort of sitting down with a blank piece of paper and trying to make something off i tried to make it as accurate and as factual as i could possibly make it with all the information so yeah it's been a long labor of love shall we say (laughs) over the years but i really just wanted to that's a lovely way way (laughs) it was really important to me especially because you know some of the stories in it are particularly challenging there's you know, by the nature of it, there's incredible stories of uh, discovery and saving lives. There are also a number of stories that involve death and involve a lot of suffering and pain. And I, I felt the duty to make sure that I told those stories as authentically and as accurately 
as mm. as possible just to do justice to the people who were involved these are not just characters made up these are real people yeah. with real family members and it was really important to me that I got it as close or as you know as accurate as possible yeah so it took time <laughs> yes from 2016 to now this year it's such a I mean there's so much information in it it sort of blew me away really because you sort of take us back to the creation of well looking at cells themselves looking at the discoveries that were made in science in connection with blood and things going wrong looking at you know the world war Two and you know like a nuclear incident i'm not going to give too many spoilers <laughs> but it's it's truly truly fascinating and so presumably this information you know you found and then you were able to sort of reach people who were connected with those elements of the stories yeah totally and i think i think one of the things i really wanted to do is bring it together in one place for the first time as far as i'm aware you know, all these stories do exist. Like people know that this happened in World War II and, you know, this scientific discovery happened. A lot of it's in journals and medical papers and it's very detailed, but it exists yeah. in the world. I think my aim was to bring it into a chronological story that shows yeah. that, you know, treatments that happen now had a foundation. Like there are, there are layers that led up to us knowing what we know now. So trying to bring it all into one place and, yeah. and tell it almost from the start. And I think, I think one of the, the key things that got me interested is I was speaking to one of the um, experts very early on in the process and they said, back in the sort of 1950s, 1960s, if a, and it, a lot of the stories in this book are about young people. So if a child was diagnosed with a blood disease, and there are, as you know, so many varieties of blood disease, yeah. the, the average chance of survival was one in 10 yeah. uh, into adulthood. That It was almost in many cases um, a death sentence. And then by the end of the 1980s, so a 30-year period, yeah. that was a 9 in 10 chance of survival. And I just found yes. that transformation in such a short amount of time just mind-boggling. And as yeah. I did more research, I realised that many of the people involved, many of the researchers, many of the physicians, many of the medical minds that were responsible for some of that transformation are still around. You know, they're in their 80s and 90s, but they sort of deserve their moment in the spotlight because you yeah. know in society we celebrate celebrities that maybe haven't done as much uh, societally yes. as these these people have and they just yes. sort of are doing their Sainsbury's shopping next to us or in Starbucks and we have absolutely no idea who these people are yeah um, and you you can pass them by and you walk past them in the street and not realize that they had a connection to you know maybe somebody you know being saved or you know yeah. it's just it is absolutely astonishing so in the book, there are three women that stand out for me. One is Liz Bostick, Simon's mum, who we'll talk about in a moment. One is Shirley Nolan and one is Beverly DeGale. And all three of those women, and I've only met one, I met Beverly and I am so inspired by all three of those women and anybody who reads this will undoubtedly feel similar because the work of those women has transformed the sort of the hopes for healing and any sort of situation outside of the scientific discoveries and everything their work to be able to get people onto the stem cell register has fundamentally sort of really changed things and and is moving to change more things I suppose it's not we're not done yet maybe tell us a bit about Liz and this the core of this incredible story yeah yeah and I couldn't agree more with what you've just said those 
three people are so important in this whole story and where we are today. So I think um, Liz Bostick was the mother of Simon, who is the first recipient of a successful unrelated bone marrow transplant in the world. He was suffering with CGD, which is an X-linked disease, which means it's hereditary from the X chromosome of the mother. Right. And if a, a woman has a child and she is a carrier, if she has a girl, then they have two X chromosomes. So the chances are they balance each other out. If it's a boy with only one X chromosome, the chances are they are going to suffer with the sort of glitch in the system. Okay. And what does that do? What does, is it CGD, isn't it? CGD? CGD, yeah. It's just a, it's an immune deficiency. It's like one of the many blood diseases that are out there. It's just, um, it essentially is, affects the production of white blood cells and white blood cells that function. So anything right. from like a common cold can have a much more severe impact than it would on someone without that sort of So essentially immunosuppressed. Exactly. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so Liz had two sons. And again, without wanting to spoil the story, um, mm. I met Simon, who is the surviving son. I think it's fair to say that and not give too much away. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he was basically given months to live. Um, unless he was able to find a, a bone marrow donor and no one in his family was a match. So at that time in the early 1970s, there was no such thing as a bone marrow register. There was no list of people to look at to try and find. It was either you have someone in your family who's a match or unfortunately or you, don't. you wait it out. And Liz Bostick, his mum was just like, sod that. I'm not going to accept that as an outcome for my son and therefore mm. went on a bit of a a one-person mission to find a solution. So she did a lot of media back in the day where newspapers were, you know, the media that people read and saw. Yes. Exactly. There was no 24-hour <laughs> social media. So she <laughs> did some incredible media campaigns to save her son, to find a match for her son. And it led to people literally queuing up outside donation centres to give a bit of their blood to see if they could be a match. They were ringing off the hook. They were ringing the hospital to say... Where can I get tested? How can I find out? And it was sort of quite innovative and quite like the first of its kind. That match came and Simon had that first transplantation that was deemed successful. And as a result of that, it inspired through the media and the recognition of that story, the media around the world were talking about this this boy who'd been the first successful recipient. And that was read in a paper in Adelaide by Shirley Nolan, whose son was experiencing you know, really, really complicated um, health impacts from his uh, immune deficiency. Mm. And there were no solutions in Australia at the time. So she essentially read this success story, got on a plane immediately and flew to London with Anthony mm. and rocked up at the hospital and basically said, you need to help my son right now. Yeah. And so what she did is she took the, the seed of an idea that Liz had created in terms of like, let's go out to the public and find people who could be a match. And she formalised it and built on it and made it something that it became the Anthony Nolan Bone Marrow Register, yeah. the first bone marrow register in the world. And I think what I tried to do in this story, while Liz Bostick is the key character because Simon's story and the Bostick family is the main family in the story, it's not to detract anything from Shirley. She truly made it the bone marrow register that it became and professionalised everything and grew it to such a, such a scale that then got replicated around the world. Yeah. So in terms of the two of the three women you've mentioned, that is kind of the, on a very basic level, their involvement. And then with Beverly DeGale, her son, Daniel, much later, 
25, 26 years later, became the first black person in the UK to receive a successful bone marrow transplant. And that side of the story really just highlights the gap that existed in the bone marrow transplant register, not just in the UK, but around the world, when it came to diversity. And what Beverly and Orin, her partner, have done over the years is incredible. They have narrowed that gap significantly to ensure that people of different communities, of different backgrounds, of different, you know, genetic makeups, we're all different genetically. Yes, Um, yeah. But in particular, when it comes to people of mixed heritage, it becomes more difficult to find a match. You need to find someone who is also of a similar mixed heritage. And they have just taken that fight and that challenge head on and made such an incredible difference. So I think it's amazing that you've picked out those three women because they're the three characters or the three people that are truly inspiring and almost made me want to write the book if I'm honest yeah yeah I I have to say they and and there are other women in the book that you mentioned there are other women who haven't obviously haven't survived and also their their lives have gone because of their age etc etc but that have been fundamental in in this even happening and other stories there have been a young lady called Laura her parents and their sort of fundamental push to change things you know there are other people within this but those three women I really identify with I think because of our own story and our own situation where anybody who gets told that their child has cancer that child has you know an immunodeficiency that means that they need a life-saving treatment that they end up needing a, a stem cell transplant you know your hope lies in a community of people that you don't know especially you know obviously when you're not a match and none of us were a match for Ben so you know I understand that desire of like well this isn't happening It's like, let's see what we can do and, you know, and push, push, push until you get a good result. Yeah, I'm I'm absolutely blown away because there are so many people to mention. I have learnt such a huge amount. When you're in this situation, you are thrust a whole load of information that you've, you know, and words and drugs and all sorts of things that you've never heard of that you can't pronounce. But when you read it and it's all together and it's a lot to take in, but it's it's absolutely fascinating and I've I've learnt so much. I mean, I didn't know that I didn't know that chimerism comes from Chimera, a Greek <laughs> mythological character. And yeah. just little things like that that I've noted down. Are there any sort of takeaways for you that you found that have sort of changed you, I suppose? Because obviously you went to sign up as a stem cell donor and that then led you on a different path. Do you feel you know, whether it's in your sort of journalistic mind or just your human mind, do you feel that, you know, you're, you're led down this path for a purpose? Is there something else, you know, that, that you'd like to do with this book outside of, you know, ensuring that every single person on the planet reads it? Well, I th- yeah, I, th- I mean, I'd love that. But I think <laughs> I, I think I find it because blood is so integral to every single one of us. And, that you know, there'll be people maybe who read the book or are interested in the book because of their links to blood disease or blood cancer or something that they've experienced in their lives. But essentially it's from the research I did, it's just really stark how quickly, you know, a glitch can occur and it can happen in absolutely every single one of us. And then it becomes extremely relevant. You know, it's something that we all have in common that our function in blood allows us to exist as we are. So if anything was to just go wrong or, you know, things weren't just to be perfect, then it can affect every single one of us exactly the same. And I think that's something I'd really like to emphasize it. These were just 
normal people are just normal people, people affected by this. It could be any of us. And I think one thing that I loved and I hope comes across is that we, we sometimes think of maybe them and us when it comes to patients and doctors or physicians and uh, recipients of care. And actually, having spoken to loads of physicians and doctors and senior haematology experts and all these people with fancy titles and big names, it really impacts them <laughs> as much as, not as much as the family, obviously, but as much as anyone. You know, they are experts in their field. They are doing their absolute best, but they are taking, they are shouldering the responsibility of trying to help these patients survive this horrendous diagnosis. And this, in some cases, and in the book, I've without trying to be overly graphic, I've tried to explain that, you know, this wasn't a pleasant treatment for some of these illnesses mm. and it had some horrible side effects. And these mm. doctors and physicians have to shoulder the responsibility that they have chosen to put these people through this uh, process. And so I wanted to, in the same way that I just said, like I actually met one of the professors in a Tim Hortons coffee shop in Toronto to interview him. And he is the person who discovered... My curiosity, who did he meet? Yeah, so it's Jim Till, who's one of the people oh. credited for discovering the stem cell. Yeah. Which obviously, working out, you know, this is a stem cell, this is what it does, then had so many knock-on effects for, okay, well, now we know that. This is how we're going to treat... And That's I'm just, amazing. He's, he's queuing with me in a Tim Hortons coffee shop with loads of people around just going about their commute and their daily thing. And you're just like, this guy discovered the stem cell and no, nobody knows. And so I think getting across that these people are just people, all right, they're, they're extremely specialist and they're extremely mm. clever and, you know, they have these incredible minds that do these incredible things, but they feel it when they see a young person suffering, when they have failures and you'll see, you'll, you're reading the book, there's so many failures over the years, a lot of trial and error in those early years. Mm. They they take that on board like they're not immune to those emotions. Yeah, um, that that really came across actually. And I was just thinking as you were talking that I can remember having a conversation with actually it was a member of the ward staff, and I remember this was in Bristol while we were in with Ben's um, stem cell transplant um, treatment, and I remember talking to some of the nurses and some of the consultants and everything but there was this one lady who was on the ward staff and she said to me we come in whoever's whatever level you're at you come in you come in with a smile you do everything you can for the patients and the families you go home you have a really good cry you come back in and you do it all over again and that really struck me that like you say whatever anybody's doing if you're in that environment and you're trying you're striving to save somebody's life it's such an intense environment to be in anyway just as a lay person but to be in that environment and to know that you're shouldering that sort of level of responsibility must be hugely impactful I should imagine yeah. and I think inspiring a lot of people talked about how it was amazing to be part of something that was so innovative and exciting and pushing the boundaries and pioneering new treatments and things but for every step forward, there were two steps back. So there were so many knocks along the way and they had to stay resolute and really believe. And I think there are some characters in the book that are a bit more bombastic and a bit more pioneering and a bit more maybe... Shall I say one name that really, really <laughs> yes, please. stood out to me? Well, one was, I think it was Roger Hardesty. Yeah. And the other was Jack... Jack Hobbs. Jack Hobbs, yeah. Yeah, and it's weird because without some of these characters... We may not be where we are today because the, mm. the the success rate was so poor that funding was on a knife edge. That, you know, the funding for these trials 
was almost going to be pulled because they just were not proving that it was working. So without the people who were a bit more like gung-ho and a bit more, um, how do we say, maybe cutting corners or maybe just not doing things essentially by the book all the time, things may have just gone by the wayside. This whole treatment, this whole bone marrow transplantation technique may never have really seen the light of day or what the potential was. Yeah, I think it's, what I'll say about it is that it's a very human story. As I'm talking, it's such an emotional story, honestly. I was a, I was a bit of an emotional wreck when I, put the, <laughs> when I finished the book. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit of an emotional wreck this morning when I finished the book because of the resilience, because of the strength and the determination of so many people in that book. And, you know, it, right at the heart of it is humanity and kindness and, and community and you know there's so many elements that I can't even express because they're so emotive but at the same time when you're looking at the the history of how these things came about things like war and coming out of war and the awfulness of what people do to each other and yet out of that dreadfulness and that unspeakable pain can come something that could ultimately flip it on its head and and save a life it really struck me that in this day and age as well uh, with everything going on this is where we should be and where fundamentally if we could all look each other in the eye we all are and the humanity of that story of somebody being able to step up and decide to help somebody else I think really really comes through tenfold well, first of all, how was it to speak to Dr. Till? It was an honour. I geeked out a bit during the process. You know, when you're doing did all you, your... Did you actually... I was going to say, were you standing in the queue and you just sort of tapped him on the shoulder and said, hang on a minute, you look like somebody <laughs> I ought to be interviewing. Or did you plan to meet him there? We planned to meet there, yeah. <laughs> it would have been a heck of a coincidence. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, I mean, yeah, he, he's in his 90s now. He is still working. And this is another thing as well. A lot of the professors and physicians and doctors, people, they're still working. They're in their 70s, 80s, 90s. They are still very active. I interviewed, uh, during COVID actually, I interviewed via video link, uh, Raina Storb, who's still a really senior person at the Fred Hutchinson Centre in Seattle. And wow. he is, I believe he's still sort of mid-80s now. He is still at it, day in, day out. Like, it's just his absolute passion as well as being a really keen rower and cyclist and he's very active still but he just that's amazing it's incredible <laughs> and and they just they were so almost without exception they were all so generous with their time they really believed in the need for this story to be brought together and told they were so passionate about what they do and believing in what the potential is like a lot of them still and they're all so in- incredibly humble like i'm mm-hmm. i'm sat with the guy who is credited with discovering the functionality of a stem cell, which obviously we are all made, everything is made up of stem cells, everything we can see in the world. Yeah. And he is the one of the people, one of the very few people who is credited with proving what that is. And he just doesn't even give himself a moment's credit. And it was the case with so many other people that I met during this process of talking themselves down almost in a very like, oh yeah, but what I did was okay, but you want, really want to speak to this person who did something amazing. Or you really want to, yeah, no, I, I know we got credit for this and it's quite cool, but actually these people are doing more cool stuff. 
And I constantly kept saying to them, like... Well, I suppose... It, yeah, I suppose it's, you know, in some ways, it's the way science works, isn't it? There's always something new happening. There's always, you know, somebody, like, one step ahead or somebody who's yeah. seen something that a person's doing over the other side of the world and thinks, oh, we can build on that. We can go and work over here. You know, that's... Yeah. And, and there was appearing to be quite a lot of healthy, if I can say that word, a healthy competition yeah, throughout all I, of this. That's one of the things I, I really wanted to emphasise because the more people I spoke to, the more people said these two people disagreed every single day and these two people couldn't stand each other. And these <laughs> there was a, there yeah. was a real uh, UK-US rivalry as well. Um, yeah. And I really wanted to get that across because... I was hearing it from so many people, but it clearly had a positive impact on making stuff happen. Yeah, because it, um, it pushed people to it pu- yeah, it work pushed each harder other to, and work faster. Yeah, so they either if they didn't complement each other necessarily in terms of their work, they definitely, like you say, pushed each other to be better and to to get to that solution faster because they were almost they had a point to prove or they had a they had to get yeah. there first or whatever. A bit like yeah. the space race, right? <laughs> it yeah, pushes you so to, to be the, the first. And yeah, yeah, I think there's a there was a a bit of a frustration. I think this is, and I may be wrong, but I feel like this is the first time from a UK perspective this story's been told yeah. in its entirety because there's there's quite a few, quite a bit of documentation about what happened in the States, particularly in Seattle, which was the Fred Hutchinson Centre in Seattle was like seen as like the global hub for this kind of work. Mm. And there was a bit of criticism in the UK and from some UK-based um, experts that it had been a bit history had been history washed or just a bit like it had been slanted a bit more towards the American angle. So it was important for me from the people I'd spoken to to make sure a British and European side had been spoken of because from all accounts, it was done here first. Mm. And then the subsequent work that was done over there kind of got a bit more credibility. So while the US Mm. stuff is totally mentioned, and you'll see like there's a huge section on the work that was done over there, because it was incredibly innovative and pushed it even Mm. further. Yeah, yeah, it was important to me as a Brit as well, you know, to make sure that the story here was documented Mm. in, in detail. Yeah, and it really and it is. I mean, it's, it's amazing and I love the way, you know, each sort of chapter and even in the parts of each chapter where they fluctuate between, you know, the 80s or back to the 50s or, you know, and you're saying it, this is relevant because and then you learn some more and you think, wow, that's another step, you know. So, I mean, it, it has been a fascinating read and, and anybody who's listening to this podcast, please go and buy Hard Graft and go and read it because it will inspire you. I, I'm so sure it'll inspire you to really think about those people that are coping with a, a diagnosis, whether it's cancer or CGD or, you know, some other immunodeficient situation. And those families that are counting on you, please go and sign up to the stem cell register. And I think it's, I hope it's, I hope that is the case. And I, I really appreciate you saying that because I think it's quite timely that it's culminated now because when I've been doing the research and speaking to some people more recently, they say that post-pandemic, the number of signups to bone marrow registers generally is down by between 50 and 60%. And while we're in a... Yeah, oh my goodness. Yeah, and I mean, while we're sort of a bit further on from when this story is based in the sort of 70s and 80s in terms of cord blood transplant, so from the umbilical cord of, of... babies and also sort of stem cell manipulation and things that we can do now that couldn't be done back then it means that there are more options and different ways to treat things but bone marrow transplantation and stem cell transplant is so important still it's still an absolute lifesaver so when you do see 
you know, the number of people signing up dropping by such a, a huge amount, it is going to have an impact. So yeah. I think yeah, the more people that, not even through this book, but just the more people that realise that, and there's loads of myths and, you know, oh, don't, don't I get a massive needle injected into my hip and isn't it going to really affect me and all this kind of stuff? Yeah. No. I mean, when it first started, maybe because it was all very, a lot more rough yeah. and ready and not known. That's not the case anymore. But obviously myths and legends sort of generationally pass on. Yeah, I think I've found out a lot like you in the in the last few years, you know, the sort of fascination has led me to to finding out all sorts of things about the disparity in the sort of diverse register, the the requirement for a diverse register and the, the sort of disparity between, you know, a white Caucasian person and, and somebody of mixed heritage. It's It doesn't feel just to me, but at the same time, you know, if everybody who is listening, no matter what your background and almost no matter what your age, but there is a bit of a cut off, you know, just think about it, I suppose. If, it, you know, if everybody could step up to the stem cell register, I mean, there's only 2%, maybe 3% maximum of people in the UK that signed up to the stem cell register at the moment. And I, I do wonder about that other 97%, even if there was 50% of that 97% that could say that's a good thing to do. Another, another thing, actually, that's because this is how my brain works, thinking about stem cell donation, you know, I'm fascinated by, and I understand why it is still a voluntary decision to make but there is a part of me that also feels that perhaps at the age of 16 17 there might be a way of you know informing youngsters hey you know you could do this and give them the option at that time to be able to to sign up and I do wonder about that what do you what do you think about that not not that it's a you can't make it a a thing that just happens like the organ donation register it has to be altruistic but what what are your thoughts on, I suppose, that possibility? No, I completely agree. And having obviously done all the research, it's almost a, it's not a no-brainer because everyone still has to have their autonomy and make their own decision. But just to be on the, you know, you may never get called. So what's the harm in just being there and then making mm. the choice as and when, if that comes along? I think loads of organisations are trying to improve education and really focusing on speaking to young people because of the long potential longevity of the impact. And if we can get out to more schools and get out to more young people about the potential impact this could have I'm sure that is you know something that will come about more people will sign up at a younger age or just just generally but in terms of opt-in opt-out it's such a difficult one isn't it because it's different to sort of the automatic opt-in to organ donation should you pass because obviously then then it's it's after you've died I think yeah you don't to sign up to a stem cell donation it's it's different because you're, you're still you're having to proactively do something. I don't know. I mean, I think just what you're mentioning about the diversity is so interesting. I spoke to someone called uh, Mei Duong, who runs a thing called Swab the World, based in Canada. And she's of Canadian, uh, Vietnamese heritage, and she needed a, a stem cell transplantation. And she was almost told by her doctors, this isn't going to happen because of the acute nature of the kind of donor they needed she did get a donation and she oh good is running this organization and it's it's incredible just essentially showing people wherever they are in the world where to find it and i spent some time in brazil and i spoke to the people who run the brazilian bone marrow register and brazil is vast and so diverse and so far stretched as well they have a huge problem of making sure they have all diversities covered on their register so that in any eventuality, whoever comes forward, they can, the likelihood is they have find a, someone they can find who's of a similar, yeah. you know, HLA, which is the, the part of the, you know, the type of blood that we need to match people. 
So it's difficult. And I mean, in an ideal world, it would be something that as soon as all of us are born, we all can be a donor and we can, you know, especially for families or people who've been involved in this, you know how difficult it is and how much of a challenge it is to find that person and to find that match. And the difficult. And if, if, if just that person who was the match knew they're out there somewhere and if they just knew, of course they would donate yeah. because... yeah. So how do we reach those people? Yeah, and it's, that, that's... this is part of the reason. Like, if this is in the world, then maybe someone else reads it and someone else signs up, and that could have then a, an impact on someone else's life. Um, yeah, or they get inspired to do something off the back of the book that generates some sort of messaging service or something. I don't know. Yeah, you know, it, it's the disparity situation. I only realised it after we were told that you know Ben would be okay, and he had three potential matches I think in the end and then when you read about Daniel DeGale and he had a chance of finding a donor that was one in 250,000 at the time and you know when you wrote there's a particular line in the book when you wrote about that being compared to being hit by a meteor yeah the same probability of being just randomly hit by a meteor that's his chances of finding a donor and it just can't be right no because your mixed heritage because yeah. you're black British rather than white British, that you have that disparity in opportunity is just wrong. And that's why yeah. the work of Beverly and Oren and ACLT in general yeah. is, is incredible. And and it's there are other organizations that are yeah, other organizations that are focusing on the different communities, whether it's like Maze in Canada that's focusing on uh, there's a yeah. huge Asian population in Canada and mixed heritage in Canada. So it's yeah. every, every different diverse group. We need all communities, a, don't we? we exactly. Need... And that's the thing. I think that's what Beverly and, and Oren did at the start. I think they were just like, we need we need our community to save Daniel. We need someone, we need the communities to step up and understand the challenge and understand why we're at a disadvantage here and bridge that yeah. gap, essentially. So I called that chapter Bridging the Gap because essentially that's what they're trying to do. That's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. So, and then moving to, I just want to touch on, on Simon. He's still here. Yeah. Which is amazing and wonderful. You know, are you able to talk a little bit about Simon? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I'm really privileged and lucky to have grown really close with Simon and his partner over the, the years that we've been working on this. Mm. He has been so supportive and also allowed himself to revisit this time in his life that is extremely challenging. Yeah. He was sort of, I think he was 18 months old when the transplant happened and a little maybe a little over that so in terms of the actual time he himself says like he's you know he's, he was a child his memory is a bit sketchy but he has like long-lasting memories of nurses wearing masks and the trauma that he felt with that so obviously during the pandemic everyone with masks and just the isolation that he felt from that came back so yeah, yeah he's he allowed me to sort of read diaries from his his mum and his gran he showed me family photos. He talked me through what it was like from his perspective. So just just a reminder, like he was the first successful recipient of a bone marrow transplantation from someone who was not in his direct family. So there was media around him. He was like rolled out in front of the cameras. He was, he was the poster boy for there is possibility around this in future. And at some point, he just wanted to be a normal kid. Once he had the, once he had the transplant, he was like, I just want to go to school. I just want to be a kid. I just want to yeah. live my life. And then in the years following, he had setbacks with his health. Mm. You know, I don't think he'd, he'd mind me mentioning now that he continues to have difficulties and challenges with his health that has kind of continued to affect his life. But I, what I really loved about getting to know him 
quite well over the years is he hasn't let that stop him traveling the world and you know being in these different exciting jobs and doing these things that he really loves and is passionate about so not even in spite of it's just who he is that's part of who he is now and he does all these he sounds like his mother's son exactly exactly that and i think there were a lot of things in the in the process of making this book that he he found really challenging. I think there were a few moments because he was a child when all this happened that he didn't have access to. So when I was doing the research and finding things out, some of the stuff was coming to him fresh, like he he didn't actually know some of it. So really really tricky. And I totally I just take my hat off to him for being being vulnerable and allowing and trusting me to to sort of hopefully tell his family story because yeah. it's such an important story. Obviously for himself and his family, it's so important, but that that was the beginning of the snowball that changed everything across the world mm. for so many families subsequently. And I think he's extremely proud of his mum. He's extremely proud of his family's role in this story. And I think and I hope he's really proud that the book is now available for people to read that and to see the kind of person his mum was and what she started. I think that is a wonderful way to end this podcast. I, I think, you know, hats off to all of these people that have been involved in this story much love to simon and his partner and family and much gratitude to you for writing the book i really hope that people do read it and i hope that they find it really really interesting and really inspiring because i definitely have and i hope it adds to the pot of creating change for people who need it no and i really appreciate all your really kind comments and obviously just the opportunity to speak to you is is awesome Wonderful. Thank you very much for being on Magical Match. And that brings this episode to a close. I'm very grateful to Mike for sharing this amazing story with us. You can also purchase Mike's book, Hard Graft, on Amazon. I hope you found today's conversation both interesting and inspiring. And as a sparkly new podcast, we are looking for guests to share their inspirational stories. And if you have one, we'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter at Magical Match Pod and get in touch there if you'd like to join me to share your own stem cell story. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, do like and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have time, write us a review. We'll be back with a new episode very soon. In the meantime, please consider signing up to the Stem Cell Register. You could be someone's magical match. Thank you for listening. Magical Match Podcast is an OB Hive production originally inspired by a conversation with Andy Mitchell and other like-minded individuals. Magical Match Podcast is hosted and produced by Ginny Walker with audio production by James Walker and music by Cobalt Ocean.